At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We all have questions, and we're all looking for the answers. But sometimes, navigating the answers to cultural issues through the lens of the gospel can be challenging. Join us for our Asking for a Friend series, where each week we'll answer tough questions and provide you with gospel-centered answers that you can share with a friend. Pray with me, Father. We are so thankful for your goodness. You're good even when we're not. You're good when we're not worthy. You are good all the time and in every case. It's your goodness that runs after us. Thank you for being so, so good even today. The fact that we are here in this place, in this country, able to worship you in liberty and freedom is because you're so good to us. We're so thankful for who you are and what you have done for us. May we never forget the goodness of a great God that loved us, died for us, rescued us, and gave us the grace to worship you in truth and spirit. Father, now as we attain our attention to your word, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that you would remove obstacles and roadblocks, that you'd remove our burdens so that our ears might be open, our hearts would be attentive to the voice of your spirit speaking to us. Would you do whatever work you need to do in our hearts so that ultimately we might be found more like you? Father, would you set me aside and speak to your people the words of life, for they desperately need to hear your voice and not mine. And so we'll be careful to give you the glory, honor, and praise. And it's in Jesus' mighty and matchless name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship. Good morning. My name is Abraham Philip, and it's a delight and a privilege to be here. It's been over a year since I've been here, and it's so wonderful to see what God is doing in Chesterfield, in Macomb County, in this area. Praise God for Winston. Isn't Winston awesome? Winston, if you're listening, we love you. <laughs> He's up in Lapeer, uh, but uh, pray for him as he delivers uh, God's word there. I remember when I was seven years old in my father's church, uh, the first pregnancy that I remember anyway, the couple that was expecting was, were just, they're just glowing. They were just so happy as, as they waited for the arrival of, of their first child. And I remember uh, my family and others in the church buying them gifts and, and showering them with uh, these gifts as they waited. And they were just so excited. But the next thing I remember was standing in a cemetery. And just... I, an inconsolable, inconsolable couple who was hurt and in shock and crying rivers of tears. Gone was the glow, the laughter, the joy, and all that was left was a marker at a graveside and buckets of tears. I saw my father weep that day, weep in a way I had never seen him weep. He'd done a number of funerals before. I asked my mother why that was the case, only to find out that I had a sister I'd never met. She passed away when she was six years old. She had contracted typhoid. And I was born three months after the fact. And I was spoiled rotten. It was, I thought it was because I was just a good kid. I was spoiled rotten. But no, it was because my sister had passed away and they just poured their love and attention upon me. I don't know what it was like to have an older sister. Fast forward to 2003. I'm married and... We have a a little one, Stephanie, who's three years old at the time. And in in the providence of God, Blessie was expecting again, and she was pregnant. We were so excited again. 
waiting for a little one, another one that God would add to our family. In June, we went to the doctor and, she, and they did the ultrasound and we saw the, the hands and the, and the head and, and we heard the heartbeat and, and we were just excited. One month later, in the middle of the night, my wife woke me up and, and I knew something was terribly wrong. She was bleeding, she was cramping. I rushed her to the emergency room and the doctor finally told us that uh, our fears were confirmed that we had miscarried. We'd lost that little one. We were in shock. We were hurt. We wondered what God was doing. And I wish I could say that was the only time that happened. That happened again, unfortunately. And so both times, in shock and in grief and in pain, we asked God, perhaps a little angry, God, what are you doing? Why is this happening to us? There's nothing quite as inconsolable and gut-wrenching as the loss of a little one. A little one leaves such an indelible mark on our memories and in our hearts and in our minds that even in the long watches of the night, those memories keep coming back, don't they? And sometimes we wonder, where did the little one go? Did they go to heaven? Will we see them again? Some of you have been there. Whether it's miscarriages or stillbirths or a child who has passed away so young, or some, perhaps a, a, a child with special needs who can't understand. Lord, what happens to them? Where do they go? Will we see them again? We're concluding our sermon series called Asking for a Friend, where we asked our church family through social media questions that they struggled with, questions that they had issues with, that they didn't have answers to. And we fielded hundreds and thousands of questions that, that we, we, we narrowed down to just a select few the, the ones that were most common. And today we are working through one of those questions, a somber question. What happens to our babies, our little ones, those with special needs who die? Where do they go? In order to answer that question, I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. As you're turning there in your devices or your Bibles, let me just set the stage of where we are in the story as we get to 2 Samuel chapter 12. David is king. He is the second king of Israel. And everything he did was blessed by God. He had success after success, blessing upon blessing. David had a good life, and so did Israel. But by the time we get to chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, it seems that David has forgotten where all of his blessings and success had come from. It was springtime, and it was the time when kings go to war. David sent his soldiers and his army to the battlefield while he stayed home. And while he's in the comforts of his house lounging around, he sees something he should never have seen. He sees a young lady bathing on the rooftop nearby. He inquires after her, finds out her name is Bathsheba, finds out she's married to Uriah, one of David's mighty men, and yet, the fact that she's in a relationship, that she's married, the fact that this is violating God's law, the fact that this is immoral, David lusts after her, takes her, sleeps with her. And as far as David's concerned, it's a one-night stand. He sends her home thinking that that's done, it's over, the, it's, but it doesn't go according to David's plan. God had other plans. That one night of indulgence of sin that David had with Bathsheba resulted in Bathsheba getting pregnant and when David found out, he tried everything he could to cover up his indiscretion, his sin. And so he did everything, but none of it worked. And finally, he gave the order to have Uriah killed in battle. 
And then when once Uriah died, he married Bathsheba, thinking that by doing so he could cover it all up and that nobody would know. But that's not how the story goes. The thing that David did displeased God. And so after the baby was born, God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. And when confronted with his sin, David acknowledged it, David confessed it, David said, I have sinned against God. And so God tells David, I won't, you won't die. I have put away your sin. Because the penalty for that sin was death, and God says, you won't die. I've removed your sin. Those words must have been wonderful for David to hear. But the next words that David heard most likely pierced his heart. Because God told him, the sword will never depart from your family. And even worse than that, this son that has been born as a result of your sin will die. What happens in those moments when we are overcome with grief? When we lose a little one, a precious one, where do we go to console our grief? How do we grieve? Because we're not immune to loss, are we? We're not immune to grief, are we? We grieve just like everyone else, but the Bible tells us that our grief is different. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 13, tells us, Brothers and sisters, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We grieve, yes, but we don't grieve without hope. We have a hope, amen? We have the hope that Jesus comes back for us with those who have gone on before. And what I want to leave with you this morning is the idea that those in Christ will go to them. Those in Christ will go to them. I want to share with you three things that we need to do and remember when we are grieving from this story. And the first is that even though our grief is personal, we are not alone. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 12, reading from verse number 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that, that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, and we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us, how then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. David mourns. David weeps. He's not crying and weeping because the child is dead. That hasn't happened yet. That won't happen for another seven days. But he is laid out before God, praying, crying, weeping, a cry and weeping of repentance, he's begging God for the life of his baby. But sometimes when we cry, sometimes when we're in that kind of emotional loss and grief, sometimes we end up in places that are not healthy. I think David was in one of those places. I want you to notice two things in this story that you see. First, you find that there's no one mourning with David. There's no one crying with David. In fact, when the servants came to, to help him, to give him food, to, to assist him, he rejected them. He didn't want their help. He didn't want them crying with them. He, he threw them out. He wanted to be alone. But secondly, notice in verse 18, 
You find that the servants are, servants are afraid to tell David that the child is dead. Seven days have gone by and, and, the, and the servants are afraid. Because if you notice, they thought he may do himself some harm. Actually, the word himself doesn't appear in the original, word, word, uh, original language. Excuse me. It's been supplied by the translators. The actual way that verse should say is that they thought he would do harm, either to himself or to them or to both. You see, David was not in a healthy place. He was so grieved, so distraught, so depressed that they were afraid of what he might do, either to himself or to them. Friends, when we grieve, sometimes we can get into a place where we're not in a healthy place. And that's a lesson that we can learn from the life of David, that grief and difficulty and loss and sorrow, when they come, don't throw people out of your life. Don't go hide in a cave or a closet. When we came to Christ, God gave us a family, a spiritual family. We're sitting with our spiritual family, amen? That God has given us family to live life together, to celebrate our successes and to weep in the times of, of loss and sorrow. That we don't live life by ourselves, we live life in community where we rely on brothers and sisters who can walk this journey together with us. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you like baseball? Oh, my, one, <laughs> three. Okay, let's pretend you like baseball. <laughs> let's pretend that a switch gets flipped and the Tigers go undefeated for the rest of the season. What, what, see, now you like baseball. <laughs> well, now you're interested. Now it's October. Pray, stay with me. It's October. The Tigers are in the World Series. It's game number four. It's been an unbelievable season. It's been an unbelievable uh, World Series. They've swept the other team so far. It's game four. The pitcher's on the mound. He's had an unbelievable game. It's been a no-hitter. It's the last inning. It's the last out, and he pitches another strike. The, the game is over. He's out. The Tigers win. And then you see the players walk out of the dugout and into the locker room. You look at the stands and there's nobody there. And the pitcher is all by himself on the mound. Does that sound right? Does that sound normal to you? Why? That's weird. That's just plain wrong. Why? Because celebration needs people. <laughs> you celebrate together. There should be joy and celebration and laughter as we lift up people and we have throw confetti and we enjoy time with each other celebrating. But guess what? That's the same truth for sorrow. See, in our ups, that's easy to do, but in our downs, we need those same people crying with us, weeping with us, holding our hands and helping us through. It's no different between celebration and sorrow. It's the same. God has given us people in our life that through the ups and the downs of life that they come together. That's why we have life groups in this church. And I hope you're part of one. I hope that when you get together, there's an apple pie or three. That you spend time in God's word growing deeper in understanding who he is. I hope you roll up your sleeves and, and, and work with each other to serve your community. I hope that you are involved in each other's life to bear each other's burdens. But if all we do is eat and fellowship and read God's word and study it, but we never weep together or celebrate together, 
then we've missed the richness of what life groups are about. You see, life groups are not just to getting together for fun. It's to live life together through the ups and the downs of life, and they are up and down, to weep together, to celebrate together, to live life in this world together. Folks, grief comes, sorrow comes, success comes, and in those times, allow brothers and sisters to come, perhaps to pray for you, perhaps just to enjoy their presence, perhaps to cook a meal and to provide it for somebody who can't. But in your grief, don't be alone. Allow the brothers and sisters that God has given you to be part of your life, part of your grief, because that's how we get through life. We get through life together. The second thing we learn as we look at this story is that when grief comes, our focus must remain on our healer. Our focus must remain on our healer. Verse number 19 we continue to read, but when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own home. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive? But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. David has been fasting. He's been praying. He's gone without sleep to spend extended time before the Lord in prayer. And this is highly unusual because David does things contrary to convention. Usually you cry after the baby has died. You spend three or four or five days weeping and then you get up and take a bath and you eat. But David's thrown all that out. As soon as he hears that the baby has died, he stops crying. He stops praying. He gets up. He takes a bath, changes his clothes, and he gets something to eat. That's completely opposite of what is expected of what should have been done. One commentator puts it this way. This proves that David had accepted the Lord's judgment despite his week of mourning when he had given expression to his great grief in advance, as it were. Now that the death has occurred, he's able to break with convention, even to the extent of worshiping the God who has taken back the child. That done, he breaks his fast and asks for food. Despite being in a place of unspeakable loss and pain, David gets up, washes himself, and goes into the house of God, and he worships. You know, so often when we are weeping and we're crying and we're struggling through loss, our tendency is to focus on our pain to focus on our sorrow, to focus on our loss. And we get angry with God. We shake our fist at God. We, we get depressed and say, God, you don't love me anymore. Where are you? And yet David here does that because in verse number 22, he says that he trusted in the grace of God. The same grace that put away David's sin is the same grace David trusted for the life of his son. And even though the answer came back no, even though the prayer was denied and rejected, David still didn't lose his focus on God. 
I wonder if we can say that. When God says no to our prayers, when God denies our request, what's our response? Maybe God has never said no to you. Praise God, I'd like to be you. But God said no to me a lot of times. I don't want God to say no to me. In fact, I don't even like it when God says wait, because I want it now. But God has said no so many times, sometimes I just get angry. I get frustrated. Some things I get depressed. What do we do in those moments when God says no and a life is taken? When God says no and healing doesn't come? When God says no and there is no deliverance? Can I remind you of the song that we sang just before I got up? All my life you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so with every breath that I am taking, I will sing of the goodness of God. In my pain, he's good. In my sorrow, he's good. In my ups, he's good. And we celebrate. But in my downs, he's good too. Amen? All the time, forever, he's good. Thomas Dorsey is often called the father of black gospel music. He writes this story about a profound incident that happened to him. He says, back in 1932, my wife Nettie and I were living in a little apartment on Chicago's South Side. One hot August afternoon, I had to go to St. Louis, where I was to be the featured soloist at a large revival meeting. Nettie was in the last month of pregnancy with our first child, but a lot of people were expecting me in St. Louis. When I finally finished singing, a messenger boy ran up with a telegram. I ripped open the envelope, pasted on the yellow sheet were the words, your wife just died. When I got back, I learned that Nettie had given birth to a boy. I swung between grief and joy, <clears throat> yet that night, the baby died. I buried Nettie and our little boy together in the same casket. Then I fell apart. For days, I closeted myself. I felt that God had done me an injustice. I didn't want to serve him anymore. I didn't want to write gospel songs anymore. I didn't want to do anything but weep and cry. And for weeks, he wept and he cried. But a good friend of his came by one day, forcefully encouraged him to leave the house, took him to the music room of a nearby college, and there Dorsey sat at the keyboard, at the piano, and as his fingers hovered over the keys, not playing, just hovering, he was overcome with tears and sorrow. But as those tears and that sorrow overwhelmed him one more time, a ray of hope sprung in his heart, and he remembered God. And in that moment, his hands went down to the keyboard and he started playing. And he wrote the words of his most famous gospel song, Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me home, help me stand. I'm tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me home. Friends, no matter what you may be going through, no matter how dark your night might be, no matter how deep your pain might be, there's a precious Lord who's holding you in his hand who's going to carry you each and every day with every step towards the next day, the following day, and every one of your tomorrows that he's given you. He's a precious Lord. He's a good Lord. He's a good God who is faithful in everything he does, including your pain and your loss. May we never forget that our God is good. 
that he is a good, good God, a faithful God who has promised to be with you even in the valley of the shadow of death. And as we fix our eyes on Christ, we recognize recognize that this is not goodbye, but we will see our loved one, our little one again. How do we know that? Because our children are with the Lord. Verse number 23 says, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Our children are with the Lord. Now let me be clear. There is no place in Scripture where it explicitly says that children who die go to heaven. But implicitly and logically speaking, there are verses and passages like this story where we understand that children and babies who die are with the Lord. Now, some people will disagree with me. That's okay. But I, as I understand it, as I have read Scripture, God is a gracious God, and He brings our babies home to be with Him. In fact, that's what David's hope is. He looks forward to being reunited with his son. He says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. The reason that David can get up from his weeping, the reason he can stop fasting, the reason he can get on with life, as it were, is because one day he will see his son again. It's as if David is saying, I can't bring him back from the dead. I can't raise him from the dead. But what I can do is I can go see him after I die. You see, David had the assurance of knowing where he was going to be when he died. We know that because in Psalm 23 and verse number 6, David writes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell where? In the house of the Lord forever. David knew that when he died, he was going to be in the presence of the Lord forever. And he knew that when he got there, he would see his son again. Because that's where he would be reunited once and for all. Friends, that's the certainty that we can have. One pastor put it this way, while infants and children have neither sensed their personal sin and need for salvation, nor have placed their faith in Christ, Scripture teaches that condemnation is based on the clear rejection of God's revelation, whether general or specific, not simple ignorance of it. There's only one unforgivable sin, and that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that's saying no to Jesus as Lord. Babies, infants, children with special needs, they can't accept or reject Jesus. They don't know that they are sinners. By the way, they are sinners, aren't they? We're all sinners. We've all come short of the glory of God. They have too. But God doesn't hold it against them for not knowing that they are sinners because God took them before they knew. And so we trust in a gracious God. By the way, we trust in that gracious God because all of us were saved by what? Three of you got it. Praise God for you. Church, I'm going to give you a chance just to glorify God. We are saved by what? Grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Saved a wretch like me. Oh, and you. And everyone. We didn't deserve it. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But babies don't have that option. They didn't know that that's the truth. They weren't convicted of their sin. And I believe because of the goodness of God, because he's a God of compassion and mercy and full of grace, that our babies, our little ones, our children with special needs who don't understand, that when they die, they'll be in heaven.
I don't know about you, but for me, I'm so thankful that my little ones are safe in the arms of Jesus. Amen? That's why Jesus says in Matthew, let the little children come unto me. And don't stop them, for, for to such is the children, for such is the kingdom of heaven. They are safe in the arms of Jesus. But that begs a question. If they're going to be with Jesus, will you see them? When you draw your last breath on this world, where will you spend eternity? You see, I've already told you that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us there is no one righteous, no, not one. But the minute you die in this world, you will spend eternity somewhere. Either you will spend eternity with God or you will spend eternity apart for, from Him forever. We think that if we just compare ourselves to everyone else, that we can show God somehow and prove to God that we're better than some of you. Like, I'm better than you and I'm better. Compared to some of you, I'm a saint. God, don't you see that? And God's like, yeah, 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 I see that. But see, there's a measuring stick that God uses, and it's not none of you. <laughs> it's not me. The only measuring stick that God uses is he compares us to the only one who's worthy, and that's Jesus. Can I tell you about him? He's perfect, we're not. <laughs> He's holy, we're not. He's sinless, we're not. He's righteous, we're not. Everything that he is, we are not. And because we don't measure up, the penalty for sin is death. That's what we deserve. We deserve to die. We deserve to be separated from God forever. And yet, God loved us. He made a way where there was no way. He sent Jesus out of heaven, out of the perfection of heaven, into this dark and dreary, sinful world to be like us, to live like us, to be one of us. And Jesus willingly sacrificed himself, willingly allowed his creation to mock him, to beat him, to crucify him on a cross. Jesus shed every last drop of blood, not because he was guilty, but because we were guilty. He paid the penalty of sin that we couldn't pay. He died the death that you and I deserved. But that's not the end of the story. Not only did he die, but three days later, he rose from the dead, amen? And he invites everyone to believe in him. The Bible said that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will have your sins forgiven. You will be added into his family. You will have the hope of spending eternity with God, and you will see your little one again. One day, there's a trumpet that's going to sound, and you're going to hear Jesus give the cry of command and you're going to hear an archangel shout. It's going to be a noisy, spectacular day. On that day, the dead in Christ are going to rise. Our little ones are going to rise. Our children with special needs are going to rise. And we who are remaining and those of us who are in Christ are going to rise too. And we together are going to meet Jesus in the air. Amen? On that day, we're going to see him face to face. But not only that, I'm going to see two babies I have never had the chance to hold. I'm going to see my sister I never met. I'm going to see my father that I said goodbye to a long time ago. I'm going to see my grandparents. So will you. You will see that loved one. You will see that child. You will see the other person that you love so much if you're in Christ. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, I encourage you to come to know him by faith today, to confess your sin, to repent of them, and to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. 
If that's you, don't leave here until you make sure that your last breath will send you to eternity with God. I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'd love to introduce him to you. I'd love to answer your questions. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ, I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. In your loss, in your pain, know that he is good. That he is a precious Lord who takes you by the hand, leads you into every one of your tomorrows. That no matter how high or low the valley might be or mountain might be, he's with you every step of the way until he calls you home. And then we will be with him forever. Amen. Father, we are so thankful that you're such a good God. That you love us in spite of ourselves. That you have shown us so much grace and mercy. And yet we live in a world full of brokenness, full of pain, full of loss. Father, through these moments, may we never forget who you are. That you are a good God. That you have placed people in our lives to walk this life together with. That we would never forget that. That we would live as people who have hope. That one day you will come back for us and that we will see our loved ones again. To that end, we surrender ourselves into your mighty hands, knowing that there's no better place to be than right in the center of your perfect will. Lord, would you continue to bless each one here? Would you continue to satisfy our longings and our desires so that ultimately your name might be glorified in and through us, so that the world might know that you are God? It's in Jesus' mighty and matchless name that we pray. And all God's people said, Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.